0: Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Hi, everyone, and welcome again to the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. We have an excellent show for you today. We have the 1031 investor, Dave Foster with us today. Welcome, Dave.
1: Thanks, Billy. Jason, it's great to be here with you guys. You know, I don't know, now that you said it that way, that sounds awfully pretentious.
2: (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, with everything you have going on, so Dave Foster, here's just a few points, because we're going to touch on a lot of topics that for you listening out there, if you are delving into any type of investing, there's going to be something you're going to learn today that can benefit you down the road. So Dave, is a degreed accountant and real estate investor with 20 years of experience. He's a qualified intermediary and 1031 exchange expert, expert who specializes in finding tax strategies for buy and hold investors, including those interested in transitioning to syndication, which a lot of our uh, listeners are. And he's lived aboard a sailboat for 10 years and now helps others reach their dreams. So, Dave, that, that's just a little, <laughs> little, little synopsis of what you have going on here. Give us a little more about what you do.
1: All right. Well, of course, anybody who's involved in real estate, right? We're just addicts. So we are investors because we're addicted to it. We love the deal. But specifically for the last 20 years, and it's part of the background of everything, really, I've been a qualified intermediary, which is the title for the people who process 1031 tax deferred exchanges for others. So that process, which we're gonna get into, I think a little bit as we go, allows investors to sell investment real estate, and then using a process, including a qualified intermediary, to purchase other investment real estate. And by doing it that way, they don't have to pay tax that would have been due on the gain or the depreciation recapture. So it's basically a way of eliminating tax that you write the check to the government and allowing you to use that tax for your own portfolio growth. So much like a 401k or an IRA would work in a retirement account, this allows you to build those profits using the deferred tax. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. And that was actually how I got started as an investor was the discovery of that.
2: So why does the government give us this option? What is the benefit?
1: Well, because we've all got sharp lawyers.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, originally, the 1031 Exchange is actually one of the original parts of the code since like 1920. And originally it was designed because there was a, our country, if you remember, at that time, was in a huge growth mode. Entering the Industrial Revolution, the agricultural um, scene was still huge. And very family owned. And so the reason it existed was to allow farmers or heavy equipment owners and operators to be able to expand when they were what we call cash rich or uh, land rich and cash poor. So they wanted to buy more and more land, but they didn't have cash. So rather than collect the tax, and in many times then not allow these farmers to make these transactions. They allowed farmers and and industrial owners to sell their assets, but use all of the proceeds to go buy more. So it was a way of encouraging the agricultural and the industrial sectors so that it was basically an economic boost to them. Well, round about 1970-something, there was a bright guy named Starker that sold a huge chunk of timberland in the Northwest. And instead of taking the money, he left it with the buyers and said, here's the deal. I'm not going to touch the money, but you're going to buy properties for me that I tell you to over the next period of time. Now, he did that over 18 months. And this is a huge, huge um, deal, 18 or 20 properties. Well, the IRS got wind of that and said, well, you can't do that you sold a piece of property, you pay the tax. And he begged to disagree, and they fought that sucker out in courts for the next 25 years. Wow. And one district court would rule in his favor, the next one would rule against him, and it got all the way to the final federal court of appeals, where around about 1990-ish, they finally agreed that he had done a successful exchange and did no tax on that massive amount of profit. So at that time, the IRS realized that they had to give in. So they created then a statutory set of rules and procedures that simplified the entire process. So now, all of a sudden in 1996, instead of having to swap properties, Instead of having it only be available to these huge farmers, it was now available to you and me. And it was as simple as, now I can sell a piece of property, use a qualified intermediary, not touch the money, and within a certain timeline, go in, buy a new property, and defer paying the tax. So it's decades of attorney bills that you and I get to benefit from now.
0: Love it. I love. I you know walking walking into this podcast today. I never knew I was going to get a <clears> lesson on top of learning about 1031
1: exchanges. So <laughs> that's the sum total right there.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. So I have an investment property, and I'm thinking about doing a 1031 exchange, but I've never done it before. Can you walk me through kind of the layman's terms of that process for anybody that's just listening to this and just getting into 1031 exchanges?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's basically four major requirements, five, that you've got to pay attention to. The first one is to understand that this is only for investment property. The rules are very different for your primary residence. They're actually better. And if we get some time at the end, we got to talk about how we can combine those because that's the tail of my sailboat. So that's the teaser I'll leave you with right now. Um, So first of all, it's investment real estate. Secondly, you must use a qualified intermediary who's going to do three things. They're going to document the exchange. They're going to hold on to the proceeds because if you touch them, you lose the opportunity to do a 1031. And thirdly, they're gonna consult with you to make sure that you stay straight of all these other curves in the road that you gotta watch out for. it's investment real estate, you have to use a qualified intermediary. Whoever you are really that owns the first property, you've gotta be the owner of the second property. So you can't use it as a way to sell a property, sort of, but not really. So, or transfer it to someone else. So you gotta have the same taxpayer. And next to last, you've got to, there's a couple of timing requirements that are very critical. From the day you close the sale of your old property, You have 45 days to create a list of potential replacements. Remember that guy Starker took like two years. Mm -hmm. Well, the artists did not like that. So now they give you 45 days to identify your potential replacements. Remember we said they have to let us do it. They don't have to like it and they don't. (laughs) So 45 days just to shop around and produce this list, a total of 180 days to complete the process. So that's not so bad. Generally in 180 days you can make a closing happen, but any property that you want to be able to has to be on that 45 day list. You can't change it after day 45. So that first 45 days after closing becomes real critical. So, and then lastly, the reinvestment requirements. You, If you want to defer all tax, you need to purchase at least as much as you sell. So if you're selling your investment property for $200,000 and you've got closing costs of say 20,000 on it, you must purchase at least $180,000 of replacement real estate to defer all your tax. Now, second part of that is, you've got to use all of your proceeds in the next purchase. So if you had a $100,000 loan, Your loan gets paid off on the sale, just like normal, and you would have $80,000 that goes into your exchange account with the QI. You would need to use that $80,000 to purchase a property or properties worth at least $180,000. You'd have 45 days to identify and 180 to close, and voila, after going through all that, you've done a 1031 exchange.
2: So you have to put all, like, all 80000 has got to go into the property. So if your down payment, um, you know, so happened that you wanted to get, you know, 80% loan value on a on debt, and that came out that you only needed a $50,000 down payment, although the value was there, you would be stuck.
1: Right. Well, and that is such a common getcha that people who aren't experienced will fall right into. Because every mortgage broker in the world gets it from the day they're two years old. Loan-to-value is a percent, 5%, 20%, 25%. Well, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's just how they're used to thinking about it. Where So if you've got $20,000 extra that you want to go to the property, but they lend you too much money, you have a tax problem. Yeah. So the answer is, tell the mortgage company, I'm putting this much money down, and if that equals 28%, Instead of 25, they all have calculators. They can use them.
2: So let me ask a question about this, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But say you do that, right? You put you put 50% down because that that's what what, what you had available, right? So that that's going to cover your, hundred, your 100 100 thousand dollars or 80 thousand dollars is going to be sure. 50% of the loan, right? So you get in there and uh, maybe you do whatever work you're going to do, and then you go in there and refi and cash out within six to nine or 12 months? Is there any restrictions? If someone said, okay, I'm going to refi and cash out, but that's going to pull out some of the money I just put in. Do I have to now roll that money somewhere else or can I now take that money?
1: No, not on. Actually, you just hit on one of the greatest strategies that are available to the buy and hold investor who's using 1031 exchanges because refinances aren't an access of profit at all. Now, If you refi a property right before you sell it, the IRS looks at that as a way of, you're skirting the rules, buddy, and they will routinely disallow your exchange because they say you're accessing profit. But when you do a 1031 exchange, sell a property, buy a property worth at least the same, no matter what you put down, and then after the fact, do a cash out refinance, you're no longer taking profit. What you're doing is accessing equity by borrowing money, that's debt, so it's not taxable. So think about that from a perspective of how you can start to leverage your career. You keep all your tax dollars safe and deferred, but you're periodically generating dumps of tax-free cash through the refinances that you can use to buy other property, invest in other sectors, do anything you want to with, while your other properties remain tax deferred. It's an incredible strategy.
2: I love that. And that actually touched on a part. Let's touch on just like for like, right? So, so if we go to the point of doing a 1031 exchange, what are... Restrictions on maybe assets we can go into.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, Peely, what kind of investment property do you have?
2: Uh, we have large
0: multifamily in
1: Kentucky. Okay. So if you decided to sell them, I was trying to trip you up on that. <laughs> you were being that theoretical investor. Uh-huh. I have a beachfront Maui condo. There you go. Yeah. Happen. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be, well, and here's how it can happen. You sell a multifamily in Kentucky, you can use the proceeds at a 1031 to buy a rental condo in Maui.
0: So we are selling our uh, Kentucky property tomorrow. Sorry, Jason, I, know. I just opened up a can of
1: worms, didn't I?
0: Going to Maui.
1: Yeah, the type of real estate does not matter at all. Any sector, any type, as long as it is actual real estate, and as long as you actually intend to use it, for investment. That means you at least gotta put some rentals in that Maui condo, by the way. Go. Got
0: any kind of real estate
1: and anywhere in the United States. So if you're selling in the United States, you can buy anywhere else you want. You can sell any type of real estate and purchase any other type of real estate. as so easy as that.
2: So buying a duplex, uh, and, or I'm selling a duplex and I want to roll those funds, I could roll that into a gas station, that cash flow? That'd Absolutely.
1: As long as you were buying the actual gas station and the land. Now, up until 2018, you could also exchange personal property. And there's a lot of investors out there that actually knew that and still remember that. If you're selling a mixed-use property uh, or a mixed-asset property, like a gas station or a restaurant, it has real estate, which is the land in the building, and then it also has other stuff. We call that ff furnishings, fixtures and equipment. In the past, you could have exchanged the ff for other ff but Congress eliminated that in 2018. But you can still exchange the land and building of a gas station for a multifamily building or sell a multifamily building and exchange that for single family or sell a single family rental and exchange it for raw land, as long as it's investment real estate, it all qualifies as like kind.
2: So I do want to transition in the syndication and a couple questions about that. Before I do, I I had a thought. If someone was living in in a house as their primary residence and then moved and rented that house out for whatever standpoint of time, would they have the availability to 1031 of that or does that put that in a, in a gray area
1: you keep wanting the icing on the cake before <laughs> the end of the show my friend yeah let's let's just talk real quick about what the primary residence requirements are have you ever done that with your with your listeners
2: uh, go for it no i mean we not in this I depth think so. no.
1: okay because this is like the greatest gift you'll ever get if you live in a property that you own for two out of the five years prior to sale. then you can exempt as a single person the first $250,000 of profit and take that tax-free. If you're married, you get to take the first $500,000 of profit tax-free. And you can do that once every two years. So there's literally a whole generation of homeowners that could be making tons of tax-free money, and all they have to do is move once in a while. Now you think about that, there's a lot of studies out there that show that the average homeownership for someone to live in a house is around five years. That means that over the course of 30 or 40 years, you're going to have the opportunity to do six to eight or ten of these things just by not changing anything you do simply buy a house move into it take care of it sell it the profits tax free and you can do anything you want with the money so let's honor your syndication folks right here and say what's the easiest thing you could do to invest in syndications sell the house you're living in go buy another house with a down payment and invest the profit in a syndication. Uh, oh you. my gosh,
2: we'll it's the order.
1: best and no- yeah. nothing's taxable. Now here's how that would deal with the 1031 that invent that person that moves out of their house, but they may be not ready to sell. They may not be sure they want to keep it as a rental or not or it may be in a booming area of appreciation, and they decide, I'd kind of like to hold on to this for a while longer because the appreciation is so awesome. Remember that the rule is you must have lived in it for two out of the five years immediately prior to sale. So they could move out of their house. Uh, military people, this happens all the time. Take a duty station somewhere else across the country and rent that property for up to three more years. Now, you gotta pay close attention to don't go over that five-year mark. But then when they sell that, do they meet the qualifications? Yeah, they lived in it for two years, then they rented it for three, but they can still document that they rented it, that they lived in it. For two out of the five years prior to sale, they would get the entire exemption. So that's actually how you can convert a property from primary to investment and yet still take advantage of both, you don't even have a 1031 at that point, you simply are able to sell it. If you go over the five-year mark, then you would do a 1031 at that point.
2: Amazing. Incredible. So with that said, let's transition a bit more into syndication, right? And I'm going to talk about the buy point and then the sell point. But with the buy point, if there's people are looking to be active and and do their own syndications here, and they're looking to bring in uh, limited partners for, for, of course, the equity. Uh, In that stance, where would a 1031 come into play? How would it be allowed if, if a limited partner was going to be, say they have 10 limited partners and one limited partner wanted a 1031 into the deal? What would happen?
1: Got it. So on the side where someone is wanting to invest in a syndication, it's a little bit problematic depending on how the syndication is set up. Because remember the 1031 exchange requires you to sell investment real estate and purchase actual investment real estate. Now, so many syndications, as you know, are set up as either limited liability companies or limited partnerships where the entity itself owns the real estate. And the reason for that is very simple. You're dealing with a large number of investors and you're probably dealing with an an institutional lender who's not going to want a whole lot of different individuals owning parts of the real estate. They want to lend on the real estate in its entirety so it's easy for them to lend money to an LB as one lump sum. The 1031 investor has to take title to a piece of real estate. Now, if they were selling say $200,000 piece of real estate, they have to take title to $200,000 of real estate. So if a syndicator happened to have a $2 million property, they could sell to them 10% of that property as a tenant in common. And that could work but they could not sell them a 10% share of the LLC or the LP because they're, they're not buying real estate. They're buying interest in an entity. So it's tough on that side. But that being said, we are starting to see out in the marketplace more and more numbers of syndicators that are starting to structure their property, the base properties, so that they can accept tenant-in-common investors.
2: So let me state this back, right? So a tenant-in-common basically means that it's it's two separate entities owning a portion of the property. Is that, is that, is that the yeah,
1: exactly, remember that Maui condo? Right. We're going in on it together right. and we'll be 50-50 tenants in common. We'll each own 50% of that condo, of the no. asset itself.
2: If someone's doing a syndication and they're setting it up under a new LLC, right? So one, two, three Main Street LLC, uh, and they're coming in with general partners and limited partners. The limited partners are breaking it off, but they they do they want this individual. Maybe they need to raise four million dollars, and one individual has a million dollars he needs to bring in as a ten thirty one. Would it be as simple? And I'm gonna say simple with quotes here, right? As, as as someone could set up that entity as the LLC, right? And that's going to be one buying partner that's basically going to take up say 80% of, of whatever sort 75% of what's going to be the property. And then this 1031 would come in as a tenant in common under whatever entity structure they'd be in as the oh, yeah. 45%.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So then you've got two owners of the real estate asset itself. And what the syndicator has to do then is backfill with an operating agreement that discusses how it will be developed, the relationship between the two tenants, and everything else from there acts exactly as normal. And what we're seeing is that a lot of syndicators are either, they've either got enough assets now that they're able to purchase the land by themselves and then sell it to investors to complete the syndication as tenants in common, so then they can accept the 1031 money, or they've created private finance arrangements where the lender is willing to spin off that 25%. So and when that can happen, the syndication can work, absolutely.
2: But as a 1031, I guess, let me ask one of the loopholes here, right? So you have a lender who's coming on, right? He, he's, of course, now gonna un, wanna fully underwrite this 1031 uh, investor in full. They're going to be on the loan in some capacity because now they're an owner. So it, it wouldn't be as limited as a partner environment as as of course anybody who would be the lps under the deal would that, would that be correct
1: well yeah well, but there's there's ways we're getting now bringing out of my pay grade but there there are some ways where you can still create the framework and have the property contributed into the entity after the fact yeah. because typically contributions into and distributions from an entity are not taxable events. So another option would be for the 1031 investor to complete the 1031 and then after the fact, contribute their property into the limited entity in exchange for membership interest. Now, of course, they're gonna have taxable events when that is sold at the end, but the whole purpose of going into a syndication is because it's producing hopefully a superior return.
2: Yeah, and I'll say, of course, consult your SEC attorney and your accountant and all those other factors of how this is all rolling together, correct?
1: Oh yeah, exactly. But there's a number of ways that they can do that. But it is interesting that because of the pressure from 31 investors, and let's face it, the desire of syndicators to accept that money, you can only say no so many times. No, I can't take your $100,000 no i don't want your million dollars you know you only hear that so many times you're going to find a way right and that's what we're seeing in the market
0: let's talk to those syndicators out there that think that this is so hard because that's what i hear from syndicators oh i i we don't take 1031 money because it's just too hard what do you tell them it doesn't it seems like there is a way there is a structure why do these syndicators think it's quote hard to do
1: I would imagine that there's quite a bit of expense and there's some quite a bit of in-depth knowledge that's going to be needed by the attorneys setting up their syndications. And there's always the, we've always done it this way kind of, you know, mode that's out there. Well, it's always been done this way. It's the few that go onto that, what we used to call it the, not just the cutting edge, but the bleeding edge, you know, it's those few that go out there and challenge it. And then before long it becomes mainstream but it really, syndication itself is not a magical thing. We've been syndicating since the stone age. You know, it was two cavemen sharing an ax. That was a syndication of two. You own a racehorse with 15 other people. It's a syndication. If you buy a multifamily building that's value add as a limited partnership and create a scenario with a syndicator and an operator, of a sudden it becomes a mystical thing it's still just a group of people getting together and trust me wherever groups of people want to get together and do something there's an attorney willing to take money to tell them how
2: yeah well i guess from my standpoint right we we haven't for our syndications you had anyone uh 1031 into it but from my point with the additional layers uh, of course of resources needed and uh documents needed it would it would have to make sense for a portion of the equity, not not just a minimum investment, just because I would have to look at my ease of raise right if I had other other Damn. people that would be willing to do this that would not ten thirty one exchange and would not incur the additional layers, of course, that option would just make more sense, but if someone's going to come and bring half you know the whole equity well there it's for each Operator to really judge what what their level or threshold is for what they would want to take.
1: Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, it all becomes down what's worth it to you. You know, if mom and dad are offering you hundred thousand dollars on a ten million dollars syndication, it's like, you know, it's hard to make it worth your while. But there are, you know, let's let's take this a step further though. Let's talk about some other options that those people might have. And we started to talk about this a few minutes ago. And that is, well, at the very beginning we were just chatting, remember I was talking about everybody's kind of picking lanes mm-hmm. and that's the lane you get on for your investing career. Well, if you're a 1031 investor, what we've just been talking about is, is, is basically telling people that it's a little tougher than you think to just switch lanes and get into syndication mode. But to stay in your 1031 exchange lane there are still some ways that you can invest in syndications. And we just hinted at the first one a few minutes ago, and that is to stay with your 1031s, keep the tax deferral. What are you going to do when you buy that new property and you've got all this built up gain that's in it and equity access that through a refinance, take the refinance, Go syndicate to your heart's content. That's awesome. And you just created a path. Now you're actually driving in two lanes, which my grandma used to do quite often, but never on purpose.
2: I do yeah. it all the time. That's right. <laughs> so we're coming up on time. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. But I have one other aspect, right? So we talked about the buy, but something that's going to be super important for a lot of listeners here is the sell. If you have a syndication where you have, of course, the general partners and the limited partners, and at the sale, you know, maybe they've um, had a great reposition and they forced appreciation, and now they're gonna they they have you know five hundred thousand dollars in equity in, and at the, at the end it's gonna have you know five million of equity coming out, right? They've had, done a great job with, with their syndication. What would be the options for a ten thirty one exchange? Would it be as a whole, or could general partners and limited partners? buy their ownership, divide up, and use it separately, where some could tend exchange and others could not?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's all going to depend on how that has been set up. Now, remember at the very beginning, Peter, when we were talking about selling your asset, we, talk, we said that the taxpayer for the old property has to be the same as the taxpayer for the new property. So how is that asset owned? If it's actually owned by the limited partnership, then absolutely the limited partnership could sell and do its own 1031. And that's an awesome tax. Now, every investor would have to go along with that or you'd have to buy them out. But that happens quite frequently. They get bought out, they pay the tax, but the entity itself has an asset lineup they'd like to purchase. And so they could get complete tax deferral for the entity by doing that. Now, if that property is stayed set up, remember we had that 1031 investor who was coming in as a tenant in common? If they happen to still be a tenant in common, then when that property sells, they could take their percent of that sale and do their own 1031. And that's one of the things that's kind of intriguing to people. If they get 10 or 12 tenants in common together, when that asset sells, then those 10 people could all go in one direction or they could all go in separate directions, but because they each own a percentage of the real estate itself, they could each do their own 1031.
2: Amazing. So if it's set up you know, strictly as an LLC where you have general partners and limited partners, it would have to be an all or nothing scenario where unless you buy, Correct. Some, buy them out, but if it is a 10 in the common with the other structure that in common that now holds in ownership could make her own choice of where to go. Awesome.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Well so before we left before we let you go, I want to talk about, and we talked about this a little bit before, before we hopped on, let's talk about defensive investing.
1: Yeah. So that's a topic that's kind of starting to get attractive to people because we're all sensing, right? This market has had an awesome run and no market lasts forever. I know I'm guilty of being the eternal optimist. I never think they're going to end, but they always end. It's how it goes. Usually there's an amazing statistic that's out there that compares the returns between regular stock equities, real estate that is leveraged more than 50 percent and real estate that is leveraged less than 50 percent and it compares the historic returns of those three classes over the last 35 years now that takes us through several ups and downs as well as the really dark days of 2008 so and what they found was that the highest performing class of them all was real estate owned with less than a 50% leverage. Now, you can dive into that, come up with all sorts of reasons why that would be. But what it says is that there is a, the, the general consensus that you could come up with is that there is a huge safety and strength factor in a portfolio where leverage is low or where there is a separation of debt and cash so in defensive investing for the 1031 exchanger what they will do is they will sell a piece of property let's say they sell it for a million dollars and it's got $500,000 in debt now they've got to go buy a billion dollars in real estate but remember the 1031 you love to grow as well so what they might do to put themselves into a defensive posture at this point in the market is is to take the $500,000 in cash and maybe use, the numbers might not quite work out, but they'll be around. They might use like 350 or 400,000 of that to go buy one asset in cash. Now, by doing that, it's just like taking chips off the table. That asset is protected from all debt risk. All you've got to do to keep the lights on is maybe adjust your rent if there's a huge correction. Then you take the other $150,000 or whatever it is and you use that to go buy another asset with the maximum leverage you can because you're wanting to try to equal that million dollar reinvestment target. So you may have a a $400,000 investment that's all cash and a $600,000 investment that's highly leveraged. Now, That's going to be more at risk but you're getting the boost of arbitrage on your interest rates and you're getting appreciation if that's still a part of the market. So your return on investment, cash on cash, can still be phenomenal on that whereas in a cash-owned asset, many times the cash-on-cash return isn't so great but guess what? That's where you go when the lights go dark yeah, and you've got that and it's safe and that's how you can use 1031 to expand and contract and ship the dollars so that you can always have that kind of safety net.
2: See, this is a podcast that people are going to definitely need to listen to twice. Yes. There's so many different nuggets in here that you can use to your investment game that's really going to carry you forward. So for all the listeners out there, go back because there's something here for you that but you have Don't haven't even go of. back. Yeah. Just start over. Start over. Start over. Like,
0: stop now. Well, go to the beginning. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We'll <laughs> i tell you what then. We'll leave this as a teaser. I'll come back. And when I come back next time, yep. we're going to talk about how you combine The 121, the 1031, and a sailboat to live on. How's that sound?
2: That would be great. That's going to be a great follow-up for another one because this was fantastic. Sailboat in Maui. So so Dave, Yes. people listening, how do we we get in touch with you? Where's the best way to find you?
1: Easiest way to get hold of me is at Dave at the 1031investor.com. We have put together a pretty good resource site that's got calculators. If you're wanting to play around with Capital gains calculators. I've got a thirty-part video series. If you think this was boring, wait till you get into that. It's guaranteed to put you to sleep. But it's everything you ever wanted to know about 1031 exchanges. It's at the 1031investor.com, and you can catch me there, Dave.
2: Well, that was huge. And for everybody listening, that is somewhere you should go check it out. Dave Foster been incredible today. We appreciate it. And to you, listeners out there, thank you so much. If you got value from the show today, we ask only one thing, please share with others, let others know about the show, the value you got. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.